Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are today's top stories. What's next for Vivek Ramaswamy after he gives a glowing endorsement to former President Trump? Find out what Trump has to say about their future together. Former President Trump in New Hampshire after securing a key win in Iowa. How's the next primary race looking and could Nikki Haley surge ahead? Iris Tao reports. Is the U.S. a racist country? Presidential candidates Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis have attacked each other over the last few months, but they seem to agree when it comes to this question. We bring you what they say. China's population dropping for two consecutive years. What's behind the decline? NTD's Don Ma breaks it down. Fentanyl kills more young Americans than guns do. Secretary of State Antony Blinken speaks about the opioid crisis at the World Economic Forum today. Top nuclear envoys of U.S. allies in Asia meeting for an urgent talk. This as Russia says it's developing relations with North Korea in all areas, including sensitive ones. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. Former President Trump yesterday toggling between the courtroom and the campaign trail after securing a key victory in Iowa. His competitors now vying for another shot in New Hampshire. NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao has the latest on Trump's campaign. Just one day after winning by a historic margin here in Iowa, former President Trump is already campaigning in New Hampshire. The largest margin of victory in GOP history. Is that good? If you think that it was easy to get here tonight, you are wrong. That was. He's there after spending most of the day at a courtroom in New York, where a jury there will decide whether he has to pay former magazine columnist E. Jean Carroll for defamation over denying her allegations about sexual harassment. Trump has denied any wrongdoing in that case and has went on to say that he doesn't even know who Carol is. Trump went on a posting spree on True Social on Tuesday saying this is another witch hunt. And that's especially as it comes right after the Iowa caucus on Monday and right before the New Hampshire primary set for next Tuesday. Meanwhile, in New Hampshire, recent polling has shown that Nikki Haley has been eating into Trump's lead there. But Trump won by over 50 percent of support here in Iowa on Monday, leading both Governor Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley by over 30 points. So another potential key victory in New Hampshire could really help Trump here by knocking out the competition, which could help explain why Trump is campaigning New Hampshire for the rest of the week. Meanwhile, his competitors are not letting up either. Here's what they were saying on Tuesday. Watch. If Donald Trump is the nominee, the election will revolve around all these legal issues, his trials. Uh, we're going to lose if that's the decision that voters are making. I'm going after Trump. We can't go through four more years of chaos. We won't survive it. Meanwhile, Vivek Ramaswamy, who dropped out of the race on Monday after the Iowa caucus and went on to endorse Trump, appeared with Trump at Trump's rally in New Hampshire on Tuesday. And I told him that I would endorse Donald J. Trump for president of the United States and do everything in my power to lead us to victory in this war. He has a big, beautiful, bright future ahead. 
Ramaswamy originally planned a lot of events for himself in New Hampshire, but these events are all gone now on his website after he dropped out. Back to you. Now to the case of a man who leaked former President Trump's tax returns. Prosecutors are seeking the maximum penalty for the former IOS contractor. In 2020, Charles Littlejohn leaked the tax returns of Trump and over a thousand other wealthy people. This led to New York Times reporting that Trump paid less than $1,000 of income tax in 2016 and 2017. NBC now reports that federal prosecutors want the judge to impose the statutory maximum of five years in prison. Littlejohn pleaded guilty in October and is set to be sentenced on January 29th in Washington, D.C. Former Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy is calling on Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley to drop their campaigns and unite the party behind Trump. Speaking on Fox News, Ramaswamy stated that stepping aside would be a service to the country and the party. And Senator Ted Cruz officially endorsed former President Trump last night. Cruz wrote on X that he's proud to endorse Trump for president. The senator from Texas urged people to unite against President Biden and what he called the Democrats' agenda while asking for donations. This is Cruz's third endorsement of Trump in the presidential primaries. For analysis of the GOP primaries coming out of Iowa and heading to New Hampshire, we have Amber Duke, the Washington editor of The Spectator and fellow at the Steamboat Institute. Thank you for joining us, Amber. Former President Donald Trump said Vivek Ramaswamy will be working with us for a long time after Ramaswamy gave Trump a glowing endorsement. What do you think Ramaswamy's future looks like in MAGA world? It's a great question. I think certainly he'll be a surrogate for Trump on the rest of the campaign if he does end up making it past this nomination process into the general election. And it's also quite possible that Trump might reward Vivek for his loyalty, so to speak, by offering him some position in a presidential cabinet if he were to win in 2024. And before Governor Ron DeSantis launched his campaign, he was neck and neck with uh, former President Trump in certain polls. Um, now he's over 50 points behind Trump, according to 538. What went wrong for him over the past year? A lot of things. Um, for one, the DeSantis campaign had this novel idea that they would actually outsource most of the machinations of a normal political campaign to his PAC, Never Back Down. The problem, however, was that Never Back Down was basically run by one company, Jeffro's Axiom. They pushed out other vendors. They pushed out voices that could potentially challenge whatever orthodoxy was being discussed in the campaign. And ultimately, that led to a lot of yes men surrounding Governor DeSantis. And uh, unfortunately, whatever strategy they had planned out was wrong. Um, in addition to focusing on the wrong issues and trying to make this very much a culture war campaign, when the top issues for voters are economy, immigration, and crime, the DeSantis campaign also focused a lot of resources in later primary states. For example, they had a very sophisticated ground game set up in South Texas, thinking that DeSantis could win Hispanics there the same way that he did in Florida, even though demographically those are two very different groups. Not to mention he had to make it through Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, just to even get to the point where that ground game would have mattered. How do you think his decision to start attacking Trump played into all this? A lot of people believe that DeSantis waited too long to attack Trump, actually, because 
Trump was allowed to basically redefine Governor DeSantis for the first three or four weeks before DeSantis even announced his candidacy. This gave him a big uphill battle to fight when he announced, and uh, that made the, the challenge of telling voters who he was very difficult because Trump had already basically taken the COVID issue off of the table for him, which was one of the defining characteristics of DeSantis's governorship as well as one of the things that set him apart from the former president. Um, Trump basically nullified that issue early on, and DeSantis could never really recover. All right, and a new CNN poll shows that Trump is leading Haley by only single digits in New Hampshire. What's next for Nikki Haley in the Live Free or Die States primary on Tuesday? Nikki Haley absolutely has to win New Hampshire in order to have any shot at staying in the race at this point. She's put all of her eggs in that basket, similar to how DeSantis put all of his eggs in the Iowa basket in the last couple of months. She believes that because it's an open primary, she can get independents and Democrats to come out in droves for her. Recent polls have shown things tightening. There was one from the American Research Group that showed her and uh, the former president tied at 40% each, but I would urge some caution on that poll. It has a very small sample size of only 600 people. Also shows Nikki Haley winning among men and Trump winning among women, which is typically the opposite of what we would expect. So I think Trump still has the edge here. Of course, there will be no debates now heading into New Hampshire as ABC and CNN have both canceled theirs due to a lack of participation from the primary candidates. So it's unclear what exactly Nikki Haley's strategy is outside of a couple of campaign events in these last few days is in order to make up a potentially 10 point or higher deficit. And lastly, I just want to talk about uh, prominent DeSantis supporters like conservative commentator Ben Shapiro. Um, he's saying it's clear Trump is the nominee. Uh, now, many other others like Shapiro are reluctantly switching their support to Trump. What does this tell us? The party is going to continue to coalesce around Trump in the coming weeks, especially if Nikki Haley fails to capture a victory in New Hampshire. Simply coming close in second place is not enough. And I think a lot of commentators in particular are going to be eager to come back over to Trump um, for the sake of their careers, frankly. Um, and also campaign officials who worked for Governor DeSantis are going to want to perhaps tie their wagons to the future of a Trump campaign uh, and potentially a Trump presidency. So there's a lot of incentive for people to get back with Trump after defecting to DeSantis, so to speak. Um, so I think we're going to see a lot of people um, sort of eat crow a little bit over over the next couple of weeks as Trump continues to work his way through the primary and, and probably ultimately become uh, the victor. All right. Amber Duke, Washington editor of The Spectator and fellow at the Steamboat Institute. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Now, presidential candidates Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis have attacked each other over the last few months, but they seem to agree on one thing. That's the U.S. is not a racist country. Both candidates spoke on the issue yesterday. Well, the U.S. Uh, is not a, a racist country, and we've overcome things in our history. You know, I think the founding fathers, they established a set of principles that are, that, that are universal. Now, they may not have been universally applied at the time, but I think they understood what they were doing. The Florida governor admitted that the U.S. did have its challenges in the past with how race was viewed. Just hours before DeSantis was asked about race in the U.S., Nikki Haley said America has never been a racist country. 
A spokesperson for Haley's campaign defended her comments later. She emphasized there's a difference between the U.S. being a racist country and recognizing that racism has always existed. watching a House Foreign Affairs Committee hearing about the flow of American dollars into China's military. Some U.S. firms invest your retirement money in Chinese tech companies. The technology they develop could be used by China's military. Let's dive in. The Committee on Foreign Affairs will come to order. Uh, the purpose of this hearing is to examine the flow of U.S. capital into China's military and technological development. I now recognize myself for an opening statement. I want to thank the witnesses for being here as well. Unfortunately, one of our uh, top tier uh, witnesses was um, who was going to testify, Mr. Um, Matheny, uh, came down with COVID this morning. So I, um, I hope he uh, gets better. But we're delighted to have the two of you. Um, the Chinese Communist Party's goals and actions are a clear and present danger to the security interests of the United States and our allies. We're in a generational competition with a determined adversary set on upending the global balance of power. Technology is at the center of this competition and the CCP is using it as a weapon for its military and surveillance state. These technologies can be used to advocate and safeguard democracy or they can be used for subversion and oppression. We must understand that whoever controls the best technology will likely prevail in this great power competition. And while we can restrict China's access to U.S. critical technology through export controls, we can't stop big investors from using their money, know-how, and network to help build highly advanced technology companies in China. Regrettably, U.S. money is fueling the CCP war machine and surveillance state. Look no further than the CCP's dystopian oppression of the Uyghurs and the successful hypersonic missile test which circled the globe and landed with precision. This was built on the backbone of U.S. technology. The ranking member and I were disturbed that we have no effective tools to stop these key investments. They harm U.S. national security and endanger our partners and allies like Taiwan. And we also want to congratulate Taiwan on their recent elections and to the DPP. So the ranking member and I acted. In November, this committee on a unanimous bipartisan basis passed the Preventing Adversaries from Developing Critical Capabilities Act. This bill has been one of the most important steps this committee has taken to protect U.S. national security and counter the CCP. This bill may also be one of the most bipartisan efforts that we've worked on. This effort spans the past two administrations. It was then Secretary Mike Pompeo who urged me in 2020 to stop the flow of U.S. money into national security sectors in China. The Trump national security team supports this leg legislation, but so too does the Biden administration. More recently, the Biden administration took the idea and developed an executive order targeting outbound rule. While ranking member Meeks and I, uh, and a growing number of members as well, uh, or with ranking member Meeks, as well as outside groups like Heritage, Hudson, and American Compass, we plan to get this bill signed into law. 
We thought we had it done in the National Defense Authorization. It got pulled. Uh, we need to get this new version that was introduced by the ranking member myself signed into law. We cannot wait. This hearing today plays an important role in that process. The witnesses today were selected by both of us. This hearing should help clear up a lot of misconceptions about the threat, current system situation, and examine tangible solutions. It should come as no surprise that China's military and surveillance state are exploiting loopholes in U.S. policy to access billions of U.S. investment dollars and expertise. We know that U.S. investment has not democratized China, and companies which are controlled by the CCP have no power over the applications of their technology. The CCP can direct it to be used for military or surveillance purposes. And we know China's military civil fusion strategy undermines an entity-by-entity entity sanctions approach and instead requires countrywide prohibitions for key technologies. Ranking Member Meeks and I requested the Treasury Department uh, that they decide whether to sanction Hikvision, a CCP surveillance company contributing to the Uyghur genocide, but Treasury decided not to sanction the company. That is the, the, that is the weakness of the sanction model, is the Treasury Department will not sanction. Our witnesses today can provide further evidence on these points and articulate why an outbound, forward-looking, sector-based regime is necessary. And we'll see whether Republican or Democrat, those that examine China objectively, analytically, and realistically have reached the same conclusion. And while existing tools such as sanctions have an important role, they simply cannot be a substitute for an outbound investment regime that is authorized by Congress. And that is our goal, restricting key outbound investments in a, a, a whole of government approach ensures America's national security comes first. And with that, the chair now recognizes the ranking member. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Chairman McCall, uh, for organizing this important and timely hearing. Uh, I also want to uh, thank our distinguished witnesses for appearing before the committee. Uh, our discussion today is critical for America's national security and our strategic competition with China. But let me also just say to the chairman, I want to thank you for working. We worked very closely together uh, to get this bill uh, passed in a bipartisan way. Uh, and I also want to thank our staffs uh, who worked very closely to jointly organize this hearing, uh, which we worked on collectively and together, which I hope advances the joint work that we have done together uh, to pass our bipartisan bill, H.R. 6349, the Preventing Adversaries from Developing Critical Capabilities Act out of committee. Today, what we're doing, we're demonstrating to the United States, to the country, that when it comes to issues of critical importance to American interests, Republicans and Democrats can come together to solve big problems. We know that Beijing is developing advanced technologies critical for military, intelligence, surveillance, and cyber-enabled capabilities with dangerous implications for our security. We also know that Beijing is busy synergizing its civilian and commercial sectors with its military and defense industrial sectors. And we also know that Beijing is intent on exploiting, stealing, and diverting the world's cutting-edge technologies to fuel its military buildup. 
So we should not be making Beijing's job easier by having Americans fund the very PRC companies that are developing these technologies. Despite a bipartisan, bicameral desire to address this significant national security challenge for several years now, Congress has not coalesced around a solution, but we're doing so now. And that's why I want to give credit in a bipartisan way to Mr. McCall and what we're doing collectively together. And that's why I want to give credit to the Biden administration for tackling this challenge. On August 9th of 2023, President Biden issued a game-changing executive order on outbound investment that calls for prohibitions and notification requirements on specific types of American investments in China or in certain Chinese companies that develop or produce semiconductors, quantum computers, and artificial intelligence applications. As we speak, the, the Biden administration is busy establishing a process and crafting regulations to implement the executive order. But that does not mean we in the United States Congress that we're off the hook. We need to create a statutory framework for the executive order, provide the administration with the resources and tools that are necessary to effectively implement outbound screening program and provide certainty, certainty to our allies and the private sector that Congress stands firmly behind these carefully tailored restrictions. That is our responsibility. We should not shrink from that. An outbound regime that combines transparency with prohibitations on investments in the most sensitive technology sectors is the very best way to safeguard United States national security while also maintaining open global capital to flows and the United States preeminent position in global financial markets. This, well, the only legislation that balances these equities, the only one that I think has that true balance is H.R. 6349. It is the most effective and robust legislative solution. Coming up, summoned ambassadors, a plunging investments, and a veiled threat from Chinese leader Xi Jinping. A roundup of the chaos surrounding Taiwan's presidential election. And top nuclear envoys of Japan and South Korea meeting amid rising tensions on the Korean Peninsula. This after the North fired a hypersonic missile on Sunday. We'll have the details when we return. Welcome back. We're watching a House Foreign Affairs Committee hearing about the flow of American dollars into China's military. Some U.S. firms invest your retirement money in Chinese tech companies. The technology they develop could be used by China's military. Let's watch. The chair now recognizes Mr. Pottinger for his opening statement. Uh, Chairman McCall, Ranking Member Meeks, and distinguished members of the committee, I'm grateful for the opportunity to speak to you today. We're at a juncture now 
where the scales of global power are beginning to tip towards America's adversaries, in part because of the leverage that we are providing them. American know-how and capital are seeds and fertilizer that have helped foster the growth of China's military might. U.S. companies and investment funds have, sometimes inadvertently, sometimes carelessly, helped to underwrite and expedite the modernization of the People's Liberation Army and China's high-tech surveillance and intelligence apparatus. Americans don't typically invest with the intention of harming U.S. national security, but that is often the result when they put their capital into Chinese companies that are working with dual-use technologies, those technologies that have the potential for military as well as commercial applications. It is hard and increasingly meaningless to try to distinguish between a Chinese enterprise with commercial aims and one with military objectives. And it's, it's hard because Beijing actually designed it that way. Corporate independence in today's China is an illusion. The truth is that the single party dictatorship that rules China has powerful authorities and influence over all entities, whether private or state owned, civilian or military, domestic or even foreign. Beijing has built a business and regulatory ecosystem to facilitate and mandate the transfer of dual use technologies to military and intelligence programs. China's military civil fusion strategy, for example, exists for that very purpose. So does China's national intelligence law of 2017, which compels, quote, all organizations and citizens to secretly support, assist, and cooperate with China's espionage activities. Chinese Communist Party organizational cells, rather than entrepreneurial founders, call the shots now from inside many of China's most famous technology companies. Some American investors try to conduct due diligence to reassure themselves about where their money and technology are ultimately ending up inside China, but that too is an increasingly fraught exercise. Beijing is running a, quote, rectification campaign, close quote, to shut down or assert heavy influence over research, consulting, and due diligence firms operating in China. So no wonder that U.S. investors who are seeking a return on their capital are often blind to the strategic costs that they are incurring for America's national security and prosperity. I've listed some concrete examples of how that plays out in my written testimony, which I've submitted for the record. Uh, allow me to close with just a handful of recommendations. Congress has an opportunity to build on the initial steps taken by the Trump and Biden administrations to prevent U.S. capital from fueling China's military and intelligence capabilities. First, Washington should take a sectoral approach rather than merely an entity-based approach. The Treasury Department has demonstrated since at least 2021 that it is disinterested in using even its existing narrow authorities to limit investment in Chinese military-linked companies. And in fairness to the Treasury Department, tackling the problem on a company-by-company -company basis would be a resource-intensive resource and gargantuan task. Chinese firms commonly dodge U.S. controls with shell companies and complex subsidiary arrays, and it would be better, simpler, and less resource-intensive to apply new rules to entire sectors. Second, the rules should cover all strategic and military technologies. The Biden administration's draft rules are a good start. They're designed to impact semiconductors, artificial intelligence, and quantum computing. Proposed bipartisan legislation also seeks to strengthen outbound investment screening in the field of hypersonics. Congress and the administration should consider adding other technologies listed as, quote, critical and emerging technologies, as the White House puts it, uh, and as outlined by the National Science and Technology Council. 
These include biotech, uh, directed energy, space technologies, advanced manufacturing, autonomous systems and robotics, and even some green energy technologies. Third, apply rules to all kinds of investments. The Biden administration rules is currently limited, uh, currently written would impact venture capital, private equity, greenfield, joint ventures, and certain debt financing transactions. And this is very welcome. Congress should also seek to cover investments in publicly listed companies. Fourth, include existing transactions, not just future ones, with the, within the scope of legislation. Uh, and finally, uh, seek to block investments and not merely review them. Mandating transparency for U.S. investments in, into China is a welcome step to better understand the scope of the problem, but Congress should also consider broadening transparency to full prohibitions on investments in targeted sectors. Thanks very much for inviting me to deliver this testimony. And staying in China, plunging investments, shrouded threats from Chinese Communist leader Xi Jinping, and a round of diplomatic flare-ups. A look at China's latest actions after Taiwan selected its new president. Here's more. A slew of actions from Beijing after Taiwan chose its new leader. A Chinese Communist Party journal published a speech from Communist leader Xi Jinping Monday. In it, he urged the CCP to promote efforts to make Taiwan part of China. This speech is an old one, first published two years ago. At the time, it didn't mention Taiwan. A Chinese invasion of the island would also present a problem for Washington. Taiwan is part of a group of islands in the region. Together, they blocked China from launching submarine-based nuclear attacks against the U.S. The communist regime claims Taiwan as its own, despite never having controlled it. Beijing also pressures other countries not to hold formal relations with Taiwan. Now back to the election, the Philippines and Singapore congratulated Taiwan's new president. Soon after, China summoned the Philippines ambassador and lodged a diplomatic complaint against Singapore. As for Taiwan, its defense ministry said on Tuesday that the CCP could amp up its military pressure. The Chinese military will continue to strengthen its pressure on Taiwan in the near future through regular combat readiness patrols and other activities, combining cognitive warfare and gray zone intrusions. Two months before Taiwan's election, cyber attacks targeting the island hit a new high, spiking over 600 percent in the last quarter of 2023, compared to the same period last year. The attacks are designed to crash Taiwan's communication networks. That data comes from IT company Cloudflare. What's more, cross-strait tensions have made companies uneasy, and they're taking action to protect themselves. New data shows Taiwanese firms' investments in China plunged to its lowest level since 2001, an almost 40% drop compared to last year. Worth noting, Taiwanese companies have long been some of China's biggest investors. After Beijing's attempts to sway Taiwan's election failed, what's next for the region? We have here with us live senior fellow at the Center for Security Policy and former Defense Department Director of Cybersecurity Policy, Colonel John Mills. John, you just got back from Taiwan. Share with us your on-the-ground observations and assessment of Taiwan's election and what it means for the Chinese Communist Party and for the United States. Well, it, hi, Stephanie. Uh, it's, it's a good thing what happened. I'm wearing my Team Taiwan jacket. 
MVP for democracy. So uh, it was an awesome time, uh, a great victory for democracy, a great victory for Taiwan. Um, so uh, William Lai, uh, Lai Ching-Ti uh, de decisively won the presidential aspect of the election. Um, so, uh, and all three parties had a, had a, a platform of increasing defense spending. So uh, what, is not, what is in question a bit is the, uh, there was not a decisive majority won by any party. Um, and that uh, on Sunday after the election, the group of academics and reporters, and I was, I, I was participated in this, um, that it's, there's never been a situation like this where there's mm. not been a, a, a single um, majority in the legislative yuan. So somehow they're, they're going to have to figure out some kind of a coalition. Does that mean the DPP, William Lai, uh, is going to work with the uh, Taiwan People's Party, the, the third party, or the KMT? Do you think that could uh, impact one thing, security in the, for Taiwan? Uh, well, absolutely. But again, it was very interesting. All said they were going to increase defense spending. In fact, um, it was actually the TPP, the, the middle of the road party, that uh, uh, actually gave the strongest numeric. They wanted to go from 2.5 to 3% of GDP. That's a pretty significant increase. Right. Now, just looking at the CCP again, and they used various tactics to try to interfere with the election, including threats and media campaigns. What implications does that have for security in the region? Well, I think great significance. Uh, one, there was a missile launch during the, uh, the, the a few days in advance of the election, which caused a, a national uh, reaction because they put out an amber alert. They have, a, they have a special radar that could detect this and it immediately flashed out an amber alert on everybody's phone. Um, so that was clear. That was, I, I think, an intentional intimidation. Um, I think uh, the stormy season starts about June. That's when typhoon season, about June to October. So if China is going to pivot toward a, an overt uh, military move, they really have to start executing their railway timetable now, meaning moving all the logistics to the right, right port uh, in the right time and the right sequence to do load out all their ships, which is gonna be very obvious very messy. They've never done anything on this scale before. Is that your so, estimation? Um, that is that the timeline you expect? I, I expect uh, we're, we're going to see indicators quickly. Uh, essentially, they're going to have to land by March or April to get a foothold before the stormy season. That, that those straits are wide. Uh, narrowest is about 100 miles, and it's a lot of high wind, a lot of high sea states. This is not an easy task. And uh, so uh, uh, we should be very vigilant and concerned over the next immediate few months. And I just want to look now at the CCP's attempts, you know, to influence Taiwan's election, how that might impact the U.S.'s cybersecurity policy, considering that we have an election coming up. Well, this was a window into the world of how they're going to play again with our uh, elections, this time in November 24. I think the sing sing single biggest uh, attempt will be uh, for cognitive uh, warfare will be TikTok. Now, TikTok is allowed in Taiwan, but they are good at filtering. And I can't go into any, a lot more details than that. They are good at filtering out the worst. And uh, we don't do that here. Uh, the Biden team and the, the blue side of the house has really, really drugged their feet on TikTok. Why? Because they look at it as a tactical advantage. 
but uh, they don't look at this long range implications. So uh, the digital digital fentanyl of TikTok is going to be the point of the spear on cyber uh, uh, operations and cognitive warfare to influence our election. But I think also uh, they're going to have a lot of street cash to use on violence, uh, just like what happened in 2020. Where do they get that street cash? One of my posits, but it's based on a lot of analysis, is uh, actually the skimming of legal cannabis, cash from legal cannabis operations, right. which we're seeing all the uh, illegal right. Chinese that are coming across the southern border, some mm -hmm. of which are clearly special operators, are gravitating toward those cannabis Gosh. operations to muscle in, take over. Thank you. It's a beautiful thing, all that cash lying around. Wow. Thank you so much, Colonel John Mills, retired senior fellow at the Center for Security Policy. Really appreciate your insights. Thank you, Stephanie. Secretary of State Antony Blinken speaking at the World Economic Forum today. He highlights the deadly impact the opioid crisis has on the United States. The number one killer of Americans 18 to 49 is fentanyl, synthetic opioid. Not car accidents, not guns, not cancer, a synthetic opioid, fentanyl. A year ago, this fentanyl that we seized, that we seized, not the totality, of what's out there that we seized was enough to kill every single American citizen. Blinken said the U.S. in one year seizes enough to kill every single American citizen, calling it a monumental problem. He added that fentanyl uses, used to come straight from China to Mexico and then into the U.S., but now Chinese producers changed their approach and instead are shipping the ingredients used to make fentanyl to Mexico. And in more China news, Chinese scientists experimenting with, with a new mutant COVID-19 strain. How deadly is it? Learn more tonight at 9.30 p.m. on NTD's China in Focus with Tiffany Meyer. And a new chapter for Russia and North Korea. The Kremlin spokesperson says Russia is developing relations with North Korea in all areas, including sensitive ones. Russian President Vladimir Putin also met with North Korea's foreign minister in Moscow Tuesday. She's there for a talk with her Russian counterpart. The two are expected to arrange for Putin's trip to North Korea. If it happens, it would be Putin's first visit to the communist country since 2000. The U.S. has been concerned that North Korea could provide weapons to Russia to help its war effort in Ukraine. South Korean lawmakers say Russia helped Pyongyang launch a spy satellite last November. The escalating tensions have Washington and its allies on alert. Top nuclear envoys from Japan and South Korea met in Seoul today. The two talked about North Korea's aggression and its deepening ties with Russia. North Korea just tested a hypersonic missile with intermediate range last Sunday, according to state media. It also launched a series of intercontinental ballistic missiles last year, at least one of them capable of hitting the United States. Coming up, President Biden invites top lawmakers to discuss the border and other matters as the recent drowning deaths of three migrants weighs heavy in the air. And China's population dropping for two consecutive years. What's behind the decline? And TD's Don Ma breaks it down after this short break. The Senate has advanced a short-term funding extension. The procedural vote yesterday was 68 to 13. The measure gives lawmakers until March to reach an agreement on an appropriations bill for the year. 
The resolution will extend government funding for the next 40 days. It marks the third time Congress will kick the can down the road on government funding during this fiscal year. But the Senate still has to reach a time agreement to schedule a final passage vote before a Friday deadline. Objection from any senator could delay that process. The House will have to take it up later this week, and it's going to meet with pushback from House Republicans. House Speaker Mike Johnson will likely have no choice but to rely on Democrats to get it over the finish line. That's a move that cost former Speaker McCarthy his job. President Biden is expected to meet with four top congressional leaders at the White House today to discuss Israel and Ukraine aid. A bipartisan group of negotiators in the Senate has been working for weeks. They are trying to find an agreement that would provide wartime money for Ukraine and Israel, and also include a new border policy that is strong enough to satisfy Republicans in both chambers. The talks appeared to slow last week as senators said significant disagreements remained. Meanwhile, the drowning deaths of three migrants have brought new urgency to an extraordinary showdown between the Biden administration and Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott. Texas has seized a city park in a major corridor for illegal crossings and denied entry to Border Patrol agents. Joining us now is NTD Business host Don Mott to discuss China's population decline. China's population fell for a second consecutive year in 2023. Give us the numbers here, Don. All right, so first of all, let me just mention uh, that we should always uh, take the numbers that are coming out of China with a grain of salt uh, because it does have a spotty record on that front. I mean, if you just think about the COVID death reporting. Um, so besides that, according to China's National Bureau of Statistics, the total number of people in China now stands at 1.409 billion people in 2023. So this is a 0.15% drop compared to the previous year. And 0.15%, uh, that amounts to over 2 million people. And that's a lot because uh, compared to 2022, it was only in the six-digit figure. Um, so now, in addition to the declining population, uh, the country is seeing a record low birth rate as well and a record high death rate. Uh, so let me just start off with the birth rate, uh, standing at 6.39 births per 1,000 people. And the births uh, in the country have actually been plummeting for decades because of China's one uh, child policy. And we all remember that was to curb the population, but now it seems like it's having the opposite effect. Uh, so now the death rate, total deaths last year rose to 11.1 million, and that's a big number as well. This rate is the highest level since 1974, and that was during China's cultural revolution. Uh, so, uh, Big number there, and it's also an increase from 2022 levels. So just a couple numbers here for you. So what led to the drop? Yeah, so there's a number of reasons that is contributing to this. Um, and first of all, uh, high ch ch child care costs and education uh, is putting many Chinese parents off from having children. Uh, of course, uncertainty in the job market right now, discouraging women from pausing their careers. Uh, another layer of difficulty, and not to mention that youth unemployment in China has hit a uh, record high as well uh, recently. Wages for many white-collar workers falling, uh, property crisis, 
uh, in the real estate sector. So a, a lot of things happening right now that's discouraging people uh, from um, having uh, one or even two kids or p potentially no kids. Uh, so marriages, let me talk about that in China, dropped to their lowest point in 2022. An increasing number of people aged uh, you know, around 35 are opting to stay single or just giving up on uh, marriage entirely. Uh, some because simply they just can't afford it uh, within China's current economic condition. And uh, one more reason I'll just mention for the declining population uh, is COVID deaths. Uh, so China reported over 120,000 COVID deaths uh, to the World Health Organization, but many have criticized Beijing for under-reporting that number. Um, so, you know, without new births, keeping up China's population is aging. And according to some estimates, um, the number of people aged 60 and over in China is expected to increase to around 400 million by 2035. Now, 400 million, that's more than the entire population of the United States. Mm. Yep. All right. Thank you, Don. Thanks. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, please feel free to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are today's top stories. Two setbacks for former President Trump in the latest developments in his legal cases. Judges say they'll keep his gag order and deny his objection to special counsel Jack Smith accessing his private Twitter content. We speak with a legal counsel for insights. A former ICE director says the crisis at the southern border is by design. Hear more from a committee hearing on border and immigration policy. Cocaine residue found on Hunter Biden's gun pouch. Prosecutors reject claims of political bias, calling the evidence overwhelming. Plus, find out how the infamous laptop could come into play. A new document says the CDC prepared to warn officials about a connection between COVID vaccines and a potentially deadly health problem, but didn't. Fentanyl kills more young Americans than guns do. Secretary of State Antony Blinken speaks about the opioid crisis at the World Economic Forum today. Top nuclear envoys of U.S. and in, in, in U.S. allies in Asia meeting for an urgent talk. This as Russia says it's developing relations with North Korea in all areas, including sensitive ones. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. The Biden administration is under intense scrutiny over its border and immigration policies. A witness told the House Oversight Committee today the border crisis under the administration is by design. Former ICE Director Thomas Homan said he served under six presidents, ending up with the Trump administration. And within months, we went from the most secure border to historic illegal immigration, numbers we've never seen before. And it's not because it's seasonal, it's not because of climate change, it's not because of Trump. This is by design. We, we already heard about some of these, some, some of these people are coming because of economic reason or natural disasters. The, the, the bottom line is when you claim asylum, you must be escaping fear and persecution from your home government because your race, religion, and political affiliation. Or, or membership in a particular social group. 
That is not the fact. If you look at immigration court data over the last 10 years, you'll see that nearly nine out of 10 people who claim asylum at the border never get relief from U.S. courts that simply don't qualify. Oversight Committee Chair James Comer said, quote, the crisis at our southern border is a crisis of the Biden administration's own making. Comer pointed to Biden's unraveling of previous border policies and commented that no amount of money can fix bad policy. The second impeachment hearing for Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas is scheduled for Thursday. The secretary said he would appear on a different date. House Republicans on the Homeland Security Committee are asking for written testimony from Mayorkas if he can't testify on Thursday. And New York City Mayor Eric Adams is presenting the city's budget for 2025. He's unveiled a nearly $110 billion proposal. And the city might have to make less budget cuts than initially thought to keep up with rising costs. This paints a different fiscal picture from what Adams forecast in recent months. We are delivering for working class New Yorkers. And all this has occurred while we fed, clothed, and cared for more than 170,000 asylum seekers who entered our care since the spring of 2022. New York City has one of the largest municipal budgets in the country. The fiscal year 2025 proposal reflects a $2 billion increase from the 2024 budget. Adams earlier warned that his administration would be forced to make major spending cuts due to the illegal immigration crisis and a lack of financial support from the federal government. However, Adams' budget now projects more revenue than expected. This comes from multiple sources, such as improved tax revenue projections, a record jobs recovery, less money spent on immigrants, and more state aid than initially expected. Meanwhile, the state's governor, Kathy Hochul, also presented a new budget proposal. It would add about $2.4 billion to deal with the immigration crisis, mostly in the Big Apple. This would be in addition to the almost $2 billion already allocated in last year's budget. In total, that will make $4.3 billion spent to accommodate the growing illegal immigrant population. This means the budget would more than double what Hochul had previously pledged. The proposed amount accounts for roughly 1% of the record-breaking $233 billion plan for 2025. And the latest on Trump's court trials. A New York high court judge is denying Trump's appeal of his gag order in the fraud case. And in the election interference case, a federal appeals court is rejecting Trump's petition over special counsel Jack Smith's access to his Twitter feed. Live to discuss is senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation, Hans von Spakovsky. Hans, how significant is this latest development about access to Trump's Twitter feed and what implications might it have for the ongoing legal proceedings? Hans, can you hear me there? Uh, no, I'm sorry, yeah, no, I can hear you now. Um, you know, it's interesting that case in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals because the appeal was actually by Twitter, you know, now known as X. They were appealing the lower court decision that said that they had to disclose private messaging to Jack Smith, the special counsel, and they couldn't disclose to Donald Trump that they had been subpoenaed for this information. Um, there was a stinging dissent written by four of the uh, judges on the Court of Appeals saying that uh, this was a wrong decision 
that it basically was destroying the concept of executive privilege. And they had a lot of critiques of uh, the majority in the Court of Appeals and, frankly, of the lower court judge. Do you think their dissenting remarks could impact Trump's appeal if he chooses to appeal? Well, I think what's going to eventually happen with all of this is that uh, we are going to end up in the U.S. Supreme Court. You know, Jack Smith is going to try to keep going forward with his uh, prosecution of the former president. Uh, many of the issues that the president has been raising, everything uh, from this issue of executive privilege to the issue of presidential immunity, uh, he's not going to get good rulings from the uh, trial judge, who obviously is very biased against him. And he's not going to get good rulings from the Court of Appeals, which is dominated by liberal judges. So the, the end remedy that the president is going to have to rely on, frankly, is when this case gets to the U.S. Supreme Court. And looking at the fraud case, you know, uh, Trump's appeal um, of his ga gag order. What are the legal considerations right. behind that and, and Trump's ability to publicly comment on the case? Well, I tell you, again, uh, New York, as you know, is a blue state, and unfortunately, the judges there, I think, are very politically biased. I, I just don't understand how they could uh, confirm and sustain a gag order which prevents a defendant from speaking out to defend himself. I mean, that is a basic violation, not just of the First Amendment, but of, I think, substantive due process rights. Um, I don't know if the Trump team will appeal that decision to the U.S. Supreme Court. But again, I just think on the law and on, on basic constitutional principles, that was wrongly decided by, by the New York courts. And what strategies, legal strategies, might Trump employ in both of these potential appeals? Well, as I said, I think the ultimate remedy for uh, Donald Trump is going to be the U.S. Supreme Court. And that's because in both New York and, frankly, in the District of Columbia, uh, he is facing politically biased judges and, in the D.C. case, a politically biased um, uh, jury system. Uh, and, and how do you think that any might... Any U.S. prosecutor or lawyer will tell you they know how biased D.C. juries are and uh, they are going to convict Trump no matter what the facts or the law are in the case. And if this does go to the Supreme Court, how do you think that might impact the timeline of the case? Uh, I don't think they're going to get to a trial uh, in March of this year, which is what Jack Smith is trying to do. There are just too many issues in the appeals process, and I don't think those issues will get decided uh, maybe until late in the fall. So I don't think Jack Smith is going to get a trial like he wants in the middle of campaign season. And just briefly here, um, what impact could the allegations against Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis have on Trump's Georgia case, if they're proven true? Well, the allegations been made against her are very serious. Uh, possible violations of the professional code of conduct of lawyers, and frankly, uh, possible violation of both state and federal laws. Um, the motion that has been filed asks for the entire prosecution to be thrown out, but at the very minimum, for her and her entire office to be recused 
from yeah. handling this case. If that happened, it would be referred to a different county and All a right. new DA would decide whether to pursue the case. Okay. These are Thank very you so serious allegations and they could knock out this entire uh, case against not just Donald Trump, okay. but all the defendants. Thank you so much. Hans von Spakovsky, great to speak with you. Presidential candidates Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis have attacked each other over the last few months, but they seem to agree on one thing, that the U.S. is not a racist country. Both candidates spoke on the issue yesterday. Well, the U.S. Uh, is not a, a racist country, and we've overcome things in our history. You know, I think the founding fathers, they established a set of principles that are, that, that are universal. Now, they may not have been universally applied at the time, but I think they understood what they were doing. The Florida governor admitted that the U.S. did have its challenges in the past with how race was viewed. Just hours before DeSantis was asked about race in the U.S., Nikki Haley said America has never been a racist country. A spokesperson for Haley's campaign defended her comments later. She emphasized there's a difference between the U.S. being a racist country and recognizing that racism has always existed. CNN has canceled its GOP debate in New Hampshire due to a lack of participation from candidates. This follows the same decision by ABC News yesterday. Instead, CNN will host a town hall event with Haley on Thursday. Only Governor Ron DeSantis agreed to participate in the debate, while Nikki Haley said she would only join if Trump was involved. Trump has chosen to skip every debate during the campaign so far. Former Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy is calling on Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley to drop their campaigns and unite the party behind Trump. Speaking on Fox News, Ramaswamy stated that stepping aside would be a service to the country and the party. And Senator Ted Cruz officially endorsed former President Trump last night. Cruz wrote on X that he's proud to endorse Trump for the presidency. The senator from Texas urged people to unite against President Biden and what he called the Democrats' agenda while asking for donations. This is Cruz's third endorsement of Trump in the presidential primaries. Now to the case of a man who leaked former President Trump's tax returns. Prosecutors are seeking the maximum penalty for the former IRS contractor. In 2020, Charles Littlejohn leaked the tax returns of Trump and over a thousand other wealthy people. This led to the New York Times reporting that Trump paid less than a thousand dollars of income tax in 2016 and 2017. NBC now reports that federal prosecutors want the judge to impose the statutory maximum of five years in prison. Little John pleaded guilty in October and is set to be sentenced on January 29th in Washington, D.C. Federal prosecutors say the evidence against Hunter Biden is overwhelming and not because of political bias. They're saying he was not indicted under pressure from Republicans. They're asking the judge to reject the president's son's effort to have gun charges dismissed. Prosecutors revealed new details yesterday. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg tells us more. Special counsel David Weiss revealed new details of drug addiction in Tuesday's 52-page court filing. The filing says investigators found cocaine residue on the president's son's leather gun pouch. Prosecutors wrote an FBI chemist made that determination after it was pulled from the state police vault last year. Weiss also publicly released a photo of the gun for the first time that the younger Biden is accused of illegally buying and owning in 2018, a Colt Cobra 38 revolver. The first son asked the judge Monday to throw out the three gun-related felony charges against him. His lawyers claim they were only filed because Weiss bowed to GOP pressure as the 2024 campaign got underway. 
They argue Weiss only abandoned a prior plea deal under public pressure from former President Trump, along with congressional Republicans and conservatives inside the DOJ. Weiss rejected the arguments, labeling them a conspiracy theory and simply not credible. Prosecutors wrote the defendant is, quote, left with the inconvenient truth of trying to explain how this could happen during the Biden administration. It said it suggests evil motives are lurking deep within the Justice Department, adding the theory is a fiction designed for a Hollywood script. The DOJ also said in its filing Hunter Biden cannot rely on his Second Amendment right to a firearm to avoid prosecution, alleging he posed a threat to public safety. The court filing includes texts between the younger Biden and former girlfriend, where he said he was sleeping on a car smoking crack and waiting for a dealer named Mookie. Prosecutors also point to what they call incriminating statements from Hunter Biden's 2021 memoir. He's pleaded not guilty to charges accusing him of lying on a federal gun form. In addition to gun charges, the president's son is also facing a separate tax indictment, which he pleaded not guilty to last week. The filing also appears to have acknowledgement from Weiss's team that an infamous laptop left at a computer store belonged to Hunter Biden. It states it examined the defendant's Apple MacBook Pro, then handed it to the defense as part of required evidence productions before trial, an indication the laptop is likely to come into play when the case comes before a jury. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Coming up, record-setting Arctic cold will continue today for many parts of the country. We take a look at how both man and beast are coping. And a fugitive who is accused of faking his own death is extradited from Scotland for a sexual assault charge in Utah. He claims it's a case of mistaken identity. We'll have more on that when we return. Thank you for staying with us. What follows now that Trump dominated the Iowa caucuses? The New Hampshire primaries are the next big event in the race for the GOP presidential nomination. I spoke with political analyst and TV and radio host Jeff Cruer for analysis. Jeff Cruer, thank you for joining us again. Good to have you back on the show. Trump had a 30-point lead on Governor Ron DeSantis in Iowa, yet according to 538, um, he only has a 13-point lead on former Governor Nikki Haley in New Hampshire. What accounts for this? Well, Chris, great to be with you. Um, I would just say it's a different uh, electorate. Uh, New Hampshire uh, has a whole different process whereby independents and Democrats can vote. So uh, Iowa was mostly Republicans. There could be some people that change day of voting and change back. I understand that, but uh, New Hampshire prides itself on independents and Democrats voting, so it's a different electorate. And I do think it tends to be more uh, independent, uh, more moderate. She's going to have, and she's got a lot of money, <laughs> so uh, she's going to have some things in her favor. But I think with uh, Donald Trump winning so convincingly in Iowa, he's going to have a lot of momentum going into New Hampshire. And say a little bit more about the difference between the voters in Iowa versus New Hampshire. Well, I mean, uh, Iowa President Trump had this story, you know, whereby he could say, hey, I fought for for you. I fought for your farmers. I fought for uh, you to get your um, financial support. I uh, fought against uh, the, the Chinese. I, I delivered for uh, the state of Iowa. So and he also fought for Iowa being first uh, in the nation uh, on the Republican side for caucuses. So he could really show, boy, I delivered. 
New Hampshire is uh, a little bit different in that I don't think he's got, uh, you know, the, the farmers there and the, and the folks who really uh, supported him so much. He was also strong among evangelicals. You don't have that high of a number of evangelicals in uh, New Hampshire. New Hampshire is not as liberal as New York and Vermont and other states in the Northeast, but it's certainly a different uh, electorate than you see in, uh, in Iowa. So he's got that uh, obvious uh, challenge, but I do think you know, he's in a strong position to prevail there. All right. And we're talking about this Nikki Haley lead, you know, in, in, the, ch in the chance that she does win. How significant would it be for her campaign momentum? Oh, I mean, it would be rocket fuel for her. I mean, it would be uh, just the, the first case this year where someone could say, hey, I defeated President Trump. I mean, he has been so far ahead nationally. He won Iowa so convincingly. I mean, there have been polls, though, showing the uh, the race in New Hampshire tightening. Uh, so if she could prevail somehow, it helps her. She goes into Nevada and her home state of South Carolina. If she loses and then loses Nevada and South Carolina, she doesn't really have a road after that. She's got to have a victory. And it looks like her team thinks that, you know, with the help of the governor, that they can pull it out in New Hampshire and with the help of independent and Democrat voters. Let's also forget that Ron DeSantis... Uh, who beat her in Iowa is not as strong in New Hampshire either. All right. And now President Joe Biden will not appear on the primary ballot in New Hampshire. Explain the controversy behind this. Well, I mean, what his opponents are, are saying is that the Democrats are canceling uh, democracy in that they're, they're canceling the presidential race. I mean, uh, you didn't have anything in uh, Iowa for the Democrats. They're not going to be released until uh, uh, Super Tuesday. Uh, and of course, uh, in some states now, they're, they're canceling completely any kind of a uh, vote. In New Hampshire, they're saying it's not going to, quote unquote, matter. It's not going to translate into de delegates no matter how the uh, people uh, vote, it's just a beauty contest. And uh, he's not participating in debates. So on the Republican side, he had five candidate debates. Uh, you had town hall forums. Joe Biden hadn't done any debates, no town hall forums. And his opponents are not even allowed on the ballot in, in several states. So they're really canceling the, the vote. And, and the Democrats have a history of really putting superdelegates in play and controlling the nomination process more so than their voters. On the Republican side, it's much more open, much more of voter involvement. So I think Republicans can say, hey, we get more people involved than the Democrats did. Okay, Jeff Cruer, thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. With the New Hampshire primary coming up quick, we hear from some Republican voters. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the views of a couple of businessmen and their take on things. Carlos Ruiz is a quintessential small business owner. Based in Tucson, Arizona, he sells custom-cut raw material to manufacturers including aircraft and medical device makers. The MBA and metallurgy graduate founded his company 21 years ago and runs it with his wife and three other employees. Ruiz originally supported Governor Ron DeSantis, impressed by his record in Florida and his landslide re-election as governor in 2022. But these days, he leans Trump. I object to um, to the country going in, in a direction where uh, one political party will um, will prosecute and persecute their, their opponents. 
Ruiz says the economy was good under the former president, mentioning the low interest rates and inflation, and jobs shifting back home to the U.S. from China. And so I saw these opportunities where business, where manufacturing was migrating back to the United States. Farmer and livestock breeder Bill Kauser looks after more than 5,000 head of cattle. He also grows corn and soybeans on his Iowa farm. Kauser says the country needs someone who can get the job done right. When Trump was in there, he made a lot of promises and he kept most of them. The farmer is unhappy with the direction of the current administration. As farmers and livestock producers gone backwards, uh, when we look at um, things like free trade. Kauser is leaning towards former President Trump, but he misses the good old days when he felt there was more middle ground and candidates were less extreme to the right or the left. For whoever gets in office, Kauser says there's a lot at stake. We're going to have to have people in there that are going to be movers and shakers. We have to get some things stopped today and some things turned around for tomorrow, or this country is going to change really fast. The New Hampshire primary is on January 23rd. Current real clear polling averages have former President Trump up by 13 points. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. People across the country battled the elements in another day of brutal cold and dangerous wind chills yesterday. NTD's Daniel Monahan has their stories. The National Weather Service says about 150 million Americans are under a wind chill warning or advisory as an Arctic air mass spills south and eastward across the U.S. In Kentucky, a dramatic rescue of campers. Four college students were stranded atop Courthouse Rock in the Red River Gorge area on Monday due to a winter storm. The search and rescue said it was one of the most dangerous rescues ever attempted in the gorge. In Massachusetts, a snow-covered road led to this vehicle skidding out of control and flipping over on Tuesday. Not just people face challenges from the frigid winter weather. Animals like this dog can also get into trouble. This Utah firefighter is plunging into the water to save the trapped canine. Bob the dog doesn't realize his good fortune and puts up a struggle. But it all ends well, and Bob does his dog water shake, a sign he should come out of this just fine. Philadelphia got its first significant snowfall in almost two years. Isaiah Stout is enjoying the winter fun with his young daughter, making a snowman. My daughter's four. She doesn't remember the snow, so this is her first time actually checking it out. Stout says his kids lost their minds when they woke up and saw snow all over the ground. We didn't have any snow stuff, so we had to run a target. It was really crazy in here. Got their snow suits and their snow boots, and then now they're excited, so this is cool. Really cool. Dan Westcott says the snow is nice and makes things quieter. I was hoping for more. I could have done with a snow day. <laughs> Dangerously cold wind chills are continuing to affect much of the Rockies, Great Plains, and Midwest, with wind chills below minus 30 degrees in many parts of the central U.S. Tuesday. Chicago resident Richard Weinberg says his two sweaters, made in Peru, are keeping him toasty. Plus, it's probably the most beautiful time in Chicago ever. This is very unique. For some, the frigid weather is just a state of mind an opportunity to be extraordinary.
Animals across the nation were teaching people that your outlook on the winter weather is everything. Like Luna the polar bear here, rejoicing in the fluffy winter carpet. Or this otter enjoying a nighttime dance and tumble. And this spirited golden doodle Freya putting on a show in the snowy grass. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Nearly 12,000 flights have been canceled or delayed this week in the U.S. due to severe winter weather. This morning saw nearly 2,000 delays and over 900 cancellations. Southwest Airlines had the most cancellations, followed by United Republic Airways and American Airlines. The impact is so severe that some airlines are starting to see staffing issues and a shortage of de-icing fluid. And continuing with the frosty weather, a polar vortex has brought record-breaking cold to parts of Canada. Video shows everyday items completely frozen amid the extreme icy temperatures in Alberta. Here, a man can be seen throwing hot water into the air. The negative 45-degree temperature turns it into ice in mid-air. Others. Others tested the effects of cold on different food items. The negative 31-degree temperature here makes quick work of a cracked egg over a frying pan. The brutal cold also froze these ramen noodles and chopsticks in mid-air with a bone-chilling temperature of 40 below. And this imaginative use of toilet paper to make a frozen magic trick. The temperature? A frigid negative 30 degrees. The CDC at one point planned to send out a warning about COVID-19 vaccines, but ultimately didn't send it. A document obtained by the Epic Times shows the alert was about heart inflammation and intended for state and local officials. The CDC sends alerts to federal, state and local public health officials and doctors across the nation through a system called the Health Alert Network. The agency says messaging through the system conveys vital health information. According to the newly obtained document, CDC officials drafted an alert on myocarditis and the two most widely used COVID-19 shots on May 21st, 2021. That's three days before a CDC work group acknowledged that the number of reported myocarditis cases after vaccination was higher than expected. And a week before, the CDC said it was still recommending that virtually all Americans 12 years and up receive a vaccine. And the FAA is expanding its investigation into quality control for Boeing 737 MAX 9 planes. That's after the recent in-flight blowout of a door plug. The FAA is now looking into manufacturing practices and production lines, including those involving subcontractor Spirit Aerosystems, which builds the MAX 9 fuselage. The agency grounded 171 of the MAX 9 airplanes and set requirements for a rigorous inspection and maintenance process for returning them to service. Inspections are now complete on 40 of the planes, and the FAA will review the data from them. A man who is accused of faking his death and fleeing the country to avoid rape charges in Utah says he's not the guy. Speaking in a sort of British accent in a court hearing, he denied allegations that he wasn't giving his true name. This individual has been extradited um, and he has not admitted his name or birth date accurately. And so I don't Objection think we're going to be successful on that today either. It's a also Objection known as... Objection, my lady. That is complete hearsay. And I would ask uh, your, your ladyship...
Nicholas Rossi is charged with raping a 21-year-old woman in Utah in 2008. He wasn't identified as a suspect until about a decade later due to a backlog of DNA test kits at the Utah State Crime Lab. Rossi was extradited from Scotland earlier this month. The suspect grew up in foster homes in Rhode Island, making a name for himself there as a vocal critic of the state's Department of Child, Children, Youth, and Family Services. An obituary published online claimed he died in 2020. Prosecutors say he used at least 10 different aliases over the years. His run from the law ended when he was arrested in December 2021. He was recognized by someone at a hospital in Glasgow while being treated for COVID-19. And Costco, Costco is cracking down on membership sharing. The company is testing a new system requiring shoppers to scan their membership cards when they enter the store. This replaces shoppers showing their cards to employees when they walk in. Costco also started asking for membership cards and photo IDs at self-checkout stations. The membership model is critical to the company's business, offsetting expenses to keep prices low. In a statement, the company said it's unfair for non-members to receive the same benefits as paid members. In 2022, Costco had about 66 million members and nearly 120 million cardholders, making it one of the largest membership clubs in the world. Up next, fentanyl is the number one killer of young Americans. Secretary of State Antony Blinken speaks about America's opioid crisis at the World Economic Forum today. And top nuclear envoys of U.S. allies in Asia meeting for an urgent talk. This as Russia says it's developing relations with North Korea in all areas, including sensitive ones. We'll have the details soon when we return. Secretary of State Antony Blinken speaking at the World Economic Forum today. He highlights the deadly impact the opioid crisis has on the United States. The number one killer of Americans 18 to 49 is fentanyl, synthetic opioid. Not car accidents, not guns, not cancer, a synthetic opioid, fentanyl. A year ago, this fentanyl that we seized, that we seized, not the totality of what's out there, that we seized, was enough to kill every single American citizen. Blinken said the U.S. in one year seizes enough to kill every single American, calling it a monumental problem. He added that fentanyl used to come straight from China to Mexico and then into the U.S. But now Chinese producers changed their approach and instead are shipping the ingredients used to make fentanyl to Mexico. And in more China news, Chinese scientists experimenting with a new mutant COVID-19 strain. How deadly is it? Learn more tonight at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time on NTD's China in Focus with Tiffany Meyer. Next, a new chapter for Russia and North Korea. A Kremlin spokesperson says Russia is developing relations with North Korea in all areas, including sensitive ones. Russian President Vladimir Putin also met with North Korea's foreign minister in Moscow Tuesday. She's there for a talk with her Russian counterpart. The two are expected to arrange for Putin's trip to North Korea. If it happens, it would be Putin's first visit to the communist country since 2000. The U.S. has been concerned that North Korea could provide weapons to Russia to help its war efforts in Ukraine. South Korean lawmakers say Russia helped Pyongyang launch spy satellite last November. 
And the escalating tensions have Washington and its allies on alert. Top nuclear envoys from Japan and South Korea met in Seoul today. The two talked about North Korea's aggression and its deepening ties with Russia. North Korea just tested a hypersonic missile with intermediate range last Sunday. According to state media, it also launched a series of intercontinental ballistic missiles last year, at least one of them capable of hitting the United States. And in Ukraine, a 29-year-old soldier was killed in November fighting Russian forces. Now his sister is asking President Volodymyr Zelensky to grant him the highest military honor, Hero of Ukraine. This is said to be the last known footage of Ukrainian medic Bodan Krotov fighting on the battlefield against Russian troops, according to the National Police of Ukraine. After he was killed in November, his sister Anna Berzel penned a petition asking President Vladimir Zelensky to award him the highest military honour, a hero of Ukraine. Petitions need 25,000 signatures within 90 days for consideration, with hers collecting 18,000 so far. I'm asking people I know who are famous in Ukraine that they share a link to my petition on their social media, and I'm very thankful for that. That's one reason why it's going so fast. Right now, I'm still on their minds because I call them up all emotional and beg. I'm ready to get down on my knees. It's one of at least 2,000 submitted since Russia's February 2022 full-scale invasion. However, fewer than 400 have been honoured. Set up in 2015, successful award appeals must be evaluated by a presidential committee, established last May to handle the new influx, with daily petitions now being submitted. In a statement announcing its creation, Zelensky said, we must know the names of all our heroes. His office did not answer questions for this story. Some Ukrainian veterans have questioned the flood of petitions, saying bestowing the honour too widely would devalue it. The government does not disclose its losses, but Western intelligence services have estimated that tens of thousands of Ukrainian soldiers have been killed. The award comes with substantial financial compensation, including free housing for honorees or their surviving relatives. That's cold comfort, however, for mourners like Berzel. I'm still waiting for the moment when I wake up and it turns out that my brother is alive. Coming up, will your guacamole be less expensive this year? Some growers in Morocco say they're on track for a bumper harvest despite the dry weather. And one unique fish is helping to unlock the secrets of human diseases, including cancer. Scientists in Stockholm tell us how, more shortly here on NTD News Today. Welcome back. Despite a drought, avocado farmers in Morocco say they're on track for a bumper harvest. Production runs from October through April, and this season may see the yield increase by 20%. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the latest. Avocado volumes are good news in Morocco. The country's climate has proved perfect for producers. The northern region of Morocco experiences rainfall, and there are important water reserves, unlike southern Morocco, such as Agadir and the Sahara. 20% of the increase in production is due to the growth of farms. 
One farmer says he's produced more than 90 tons of Haas avocados, a 30% increase in comparison to the last three years. I also have an increase in production. I had young trees, so it is normal for the production to increase with each year. There are other factors that play a role in increasing the production, for example, the absence of both ice and high temperatures and wind as well. But he says he's still mindful that avocados are a thirsty fruit. Each avocado tree can consume approximately 30 liters per hour and the amount can change according to the seasons. We can use only half that amount, almost 15 liters per hour. Each avocado tree can consume approximately 30 liters per hour. Morocco has recently endured a severe drought. Despite the dry conditions, the country's avocado industry has been resilient. The state has now developed a strategy to confront water scarcity. In this context, it is necessary to regulate the cultivation of these types of trees, as well as watermelons, which must be in areas characterized by abundant water, such as the Lucos Basin. Every year, Morocco exports almost all the avocados it grows. But today, two-thirds of this year's harvest don't have a destination yet. There are problems that accompany the increase in production, which is the small size of the fruit. When the tree is full of fruit, this negatively affects its size. When the tree is full of fruit, the fruit is small and vice versa. This is what has affected marketing at the present time. 2024 could be a tough year for Morocco's avocados. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And in health news, ultra-processed foods hold a hidden addiction. They're strategically designed to make us go back for seconds and thirds. Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. The occasional craving for a sweet or salty snack is familiar to many, but when does that urge cross into addiction? A comprehensive review of almost 300 global studies was published in the British Medical Journal. It suggested that the line might be finer than we think. The research used the Yale Food Addiction Scale. It draws parallels between the criteria for substance abuse and food addiction. This tool determines whether one's relationship with foods such as pizza and ice cream can be classified as an addiction. The study uncovers a striking resemblance between the addictive qualities of junk food and those of alcohol and tobacco. Alcohol and tobacco have addiction rates of 14% and 18% respectively. Ultra-processed foods match closely, with a 14% addiction rate among adults. However, the level of implied addiction in children is unprecedented at 12%. That means 1 in 8 children qualify as addicted to ultra-processed foods. Ultra-processed foods have seamlessly woven themselves into our daily diets. They are packed with refined sugars, fats and an array of additives. They are designed not to just tempt our taste buds, but also to make us return for more. So maybe now you're wondering if your relationship with food is a casual fling or something more concerning. The Yale Food Addiction Scale can help you. This 25-question survey is designed to identify signs of potential food addiction. It focuses on symptoms such as uncontrollable cravings, withdrawal and continued consumption despite negative consequences. Questions such as in the last 12 months has overeating caused problems with family or friends offers insights into your eating habits. In today's world, indulgence often tiptoes into addiction. These tools empower us with self-awareness. And staying with health news, could zebra fish help cure cancer? 
In Stockholm, scientists breed, feed, and keep tens of thousands of blue and silver fish. They hope the species can unlock the secrets of human diseases. Could these zebrafish be the key to help unlock secrets about human illnesses? Scientists in Stockholm think so. They have bred the blue and silver fish for over 20 years, believing they are key model organisms for medical research. You can use zebrafish in everything from cancer research. You can transplant cancer cells into the zebrafish and test new cancer drugs. You can study orphan diseases, which are diseases where there is no known cause known yet. You can do toxicology, so screen for substances which are toxic and much more. This is the Karolinska Institute's zebrafish core facility. It is home to some 20,000 zebrafish. Lars Brautigam, scientific director of the facility, explains why the fish is a great model organism for medical research. The genome of the zebrafish has been sequenced many years ago and people have seen that if you mutate genes in zebrafish, the phenotype, how the zebrafish looks like, resembles very closely to patients that have the same mutations and then people realised that the genetic environment of the zebrafish and the patients is the same. Zebrafish have a few advantages that make them favourable in research. They breed quickly and in great numbers. They also develop quickly once hatched and become fully viable and swimming in around five days. The fish are also cheaper to breed than mice, which is widely used in scientific research. Zebrafish are clear when they are very young and the embryos also develop outside their mother. Ideal for scientists to study early development. Well, the short life cycle allows you to run experiments in a very short time because you have a organism so that develops very quickly and that gives you the opportunity to study organ development, to study the brain development or different kind of cancer diseases in a very short time. Brautigam says his team is testing cancer medications on the fish that will hopefully be useful in helping patients with the disease. So what we do mostly is we transplant cancer cells into zebrafish embryos and then we test new medications that will be used hopefully future in the future in the clinic. And then we can test in zebrafish embryos if these new medications are better than the existing medications. And a crew of four private astronauts are preparing to launch to the International Space Station. Liftoff of the SpaceX Dragon is scheduled for 5.11 p.m. Eastern Time today from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. This marks the third mission carrying private astronauts to the ISS, but the first with an all-European crew. The team will spend up to two weeks in orbit conducting research and testing tech in the low-gravity environment. The mission will help chart a course toward the planned Axiom Station, which is set to be the first commercial space station. The crew members hail from Spain, Italy, Turkey, and Sweden. And that's all for today's news. Thank you for tuning in. Feel free to reach out to us with news tips or feedback at news.today at ntd.com. And we'll be back with more stories tomorrow.